0: So open your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1, is where, where we will start in just a moment. The key concept for our message today in the Gospel of Matthew is we can know the King. We can know the King. I'm going to take you through a, a journey, on a journey through the Gospel of Matthew, but before we do that, I want to tell you about the Gospels themselves. Because the question could be asked, why is it that we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And in reality, that is a misnomer to say that we have four Gospels. The Gospel means good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. And there really is only one Gospel. But it's told to us from four perspectives. It's best to say the Gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark, Luke, and John. Each of, us, each of them shows us the account of Jesus Christ from a unique perspective. And in order to get your head around, what I mean by that is, I'm going to tell you about one of my favorite movies. One of my favorite action movies is a movie that really didn't do all that well in the theater. It was kind of come and gone. But it was the movie called Vantage Point. Vantage Point told a story about a fictional uh, assassination attempt on the President of the United States while he was on a diplomatic mission to Spain. Now, the story itself is not all that you know, unique, it's interesting, but nothing mind-blowing, but the way that they told the story was fascinating. The, the, the main scene of the movie is that scene where the president, there's an attempt on the president's life. And they show you that particular scene from the various vantage points of the people in that place. And so first you see the attempt of the president's life from the vantage point of the Secret Service agent. You see what he saw. Then you see what the uh, policeman there in Madrid saw. Then you see what a reporter saw. Then you see what a tourist saw. And that same scene is rolled back and played again from the eyes of these different people. And what you get is different perspectives, a little different view, all looking at the exact same thing. It's an interesting movie, and it's a very good parallel to what we have in the Gospels. Because each of the Gospel authors tells us about the life of Jesus Christ from that different vantage point, different perspective, to a different audience. And that's what's crucial for us to understand. They're writing with a particular audience in mind. And so they're styling the telling of the story of the good news in order to convince that audience that they have in mind that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is the Savior of all mankind. And so we need to understand that. And what it tells us is the very first thing we need to know when you read the Gospels, you are not reading a biography. When you read a biography, you read about a person's life and you read about that life in sequence and the chronology and the, and the date upon date, year upon year. That's what you read when you read a biography. That's not what you read when you read the Gospels. You do not read a biography. Every once in a while, for the most part, there's a general flow of the life of Christ through the Gospels. But every once in a while, you'll come across something and you go, huh, the other guy says he does that here and he says he does that there. Or he says that here and he says he says that here. And oftentimes, critics of the Bible will say, look at the contradictions. Look at all these contradictions. They can't even keep the story straight in terms of where Jesus said what. And that's because the Gospel authors don't want to do that. They're not trying to give you a biography of Jesus. They construct the, the things that they saw and that they know about Jesus in such a way that as they tell the story, they're going to convince their audience, okay? So there's no contradictions, really. It's not meant to flow as as a biography would. Now you ask, well, can you come up with a chronology of the life of Christ that tells the story in order? And the answer is absolutely. They're, they're, they're out there. That's not what the Gospels are. Are, but they're out there and, and you can pick up uh, any book called The Harmony of the Gospels. There's a lot of Harmonies of the Gospels available in bookstores. If you have a study Bible, probably they give you a Harmony of the Gospel in, in chart form. And we can do that, but we recognize that, that, that the, uh, the Gospels are other than that. They're seeking to make a particular point. So, for instance, Matthew portrays Jesus as King of the Jews come in the line of David. Matthew is written to Jewish readers. And so he wants to convince the Jewish reader that this is the Messiah that they've always looked forward to. Mark, on the other hand, is written to Romans. He's, written, he's writing to the Roman reader. And so there's no genealogy in Mark. There's not a lot of long speeches in Mark. But there's a lot of action in Mark. A lot of miracles in Mark. Because the Romans didn't care so much about what you say. They wanted to see what you do, okay? Luke is written to a very specific person, a man named Theophilus, and he depicts Jesus as the perfect Savior for all humankind. Through Theophilus, Luke is written to all educated uh, Gentiles in the Roman Empire. He wants to convince them that Jesus is for all. And John is written also with a general audience in mind, but John takes a different approach. It's the last gospel written and John writes knowing that the other histories are already there, so he writes a very theological book. John wants to convince us that Jesus is God the Son, come in the flesh, walking among us. So each of these authors takes a little different approach for a little different audience, but collectively from all these vantage points, we have the story of God made flesh come on a mission of rescue for you and for me. And so we'll start in Matthew. Let's talk about Matthew. Matthew wrote to the Jews. Matthew emphasizes those things that are going to be important to Jews. Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel. Matthew looks for fulfilled prophecy more than any other gospel. Matthew says over and over again, so that it might be fulfilled. Because he wants the Jewish reader to, to get the point that this is the Messiah they've been waiting for. And you get a sense of the Jewishness of Matthew right in verse 1, chapter 1. Read it with me. It says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he goes on for a genealogy. This genealogy only goes back to Abraham because that's all he needs to do. All he's proving is that Jesus is Jewish. But he's not just any Jew. He is in the line of David, the kingly line, that messianic line and he is the one uh, come from the line of David. And the reason that Matthew has to write to Jews particularly becomes clear when we begin to understand when he writes. Now, most scholars will place Matthew around in between the years AD 55 and 65, okay? very early in the, in the movement called Christianity, A.D. 55 to 65. And what's happening in those years is that the movement of Christ followers is becoming increasingly Gentile because the Apostle Paul is taking his journeys and he's spreading the message and pagan Gentiles are responding to the message of Jesus as the Savior. And what's starting to happen in those years is that Matthew wants to make sure that the, uh, the ministry of evangelism is still open to the Jew. He doesn't want the Jews to think, well, this Christianity, this is a Gentile-only religion. And so he makes sure that they know this is your Messiah. And because what's, what's also happening at the same times is that the Jews in the synagogue who accept Jesus as Messiah and the Jews in the synagogue who don't accept Jesus as Messiah are starting to come to loggerheads. Very soon, those who follow Jesus as Messiah are going to be thrown out of the synagogues. And so, Matthew wants the Jews to, to recognize that, that when you follow Jesus, you're not really stopping being a Jew. You are following the fulfillment of everything your scriptures told you about as you, as you wor- worshipped God. But he also makes a statement to the Gentiles, reminding the Gentile Christian pop- uh, population, your roots are in Judaism. So don't reject those ethnically Jewish brothers and sisters. So as we look at the Gospel of Matthew, I'm going to lay out the sections. The first section I'll call the Arrival of the King okay? And it's, it's the shor, a short section from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 17. Inside that section, you have the genealogy of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the visit of the Magi, the escape to Egypt, the baptism of Jesus, and the temptation of Jesus. All these set the stage for the larger section of the book, which is going to be the ministry of the king. That's the great bulk of the book of Matthew. But this arrival of the king is told to us in a way that lets us know that God always had this in mind in a miraculous way. And that is in chapter 1, verse 22. Just look there. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Matthew is talking about the birth of Jesus, and he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, what I want you to see is as Matthew is quoting Isaiah 7.14 there, Isaiah said those words 700 years before this event. And if Matthew hadn't explained to us that God saw through the event 700 years ago to the coming of Jesus, we would never connect Isaiah 7.14 to Jesus. We would think that when Isaiah says a virgin will conceive and by the time she has a child and and, and the child grows up, we would think that's a mechanism of timing for King Ahaz's situation, and it was. But Matthew lets us see that God had a double fulfillment in mind, that there would be a time when God literally would use a virgin, a virgin would literally conceive, and literally her baby would be God with us. And Matthew shows us that to say God always had this planned, This is your Messiah, Jews, who God was bringing into the world for you. Now, the bulk of of Matthew's book is what I call the ministry of the king from chapter 4, verse 18, to chapter 25, verse 46. And here's what I want to tell you about Matthew's telling of the ministry of Jesus. Matthew organizes his telling of the ministry around what scholars call the five discourses. They're five speeches, if you will. In Matthew, there's a lot of red ink if you have a red letter Bible, okay? Because Matthew shows us five long speeches throughout the course of Jesus' life, and he alternates the telling of Jesus' story between speech and action. So I'm going to show you the sections that I call Kingdom Action and then Kingdom Speech. Kingdom Action, Kingdom Speech. And it goes alternately that way throughout Matthew till you get to the very end. And Kingdom Action, number one, is he builds his team and then he goes out and on a miracle working tour in Galilee. Go over to chapter four. And in verse 17, you see Jesus crossing over from the preparatory moments to his ministry. It says, verse 17, chapter 4 From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What Jesus is doing is he's taking the words from John the Baptist. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. Taking John the Baptist's message and he's applying it to himself and he's saying, John was right, things are happening and I'm it. And then you see him call his initial core disciples to himself, Peter, Andrew, James and John, and they go out on a tour of Galilee where they begin to see Jesus doing miracles of healing. And it's exactly what you would expect to happen, happens. The word spreads, his fame spreads fast. And as soon as that occurs, Matthew pivots in chapter 5 to the kingdom speech, number 1. And it's Jesus' most famous speech, the Sermon on the Mount. Now it's discourse number 1. Verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying... And the Sermon on the Mount shows us the ethic of the kingdom. This kingdom speech is all about how the king's kids will live the kind of things that we'll do, the kind of thoughts that we'll think. And it's an ethic that is not achievable in human terms alone. But it's so attractive that the words of the Sermon of the Mount have penetrated even our secular society. If we would live like this, love would dominate lawlessness. There would be no, no battles and no fights between people or between nations. The, the, the future that Jesus outlines and the way He wants His people to live is so attractive So secular people know the lines out of this sermon. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. 14, you are the light of the world. Verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the kind of ethic that Jesus calls his people to. But you're only able to achieve that when you are related to the king. When you are a child of the king. And he's calling them upward to that kind of ethic. And the way that his sermon affects the hearers is totally new. Go to the very end of this kingdom sermon in chapter 7. We're going to move quickly, so just keep turning your pages. Chapter 7, verse 28. And, and the sermon has just ended. And here's Matthew's account of the response. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. You see, when the teachers of the law taught, they quoted the other scribes. They quoted the the rabbis, the famous people, to give their words authority. But here comes Jesus, and he speaks in a self-authenticating way. He says, you have heard it said, I say to you. And the people come away from that going, what is this? Who is this who speaks in this way? And you're meant to ask that question. And immediately when you ask that question, Matthew pivots to kingdom actions. Kingdom action number two, the section, the second section of kingdom actions goes from chapter 8 through chapter 10, verse 4. And the actions of the kingdom is Jesus is seen doing miracles. How many miracles does he do in that section? Twelve. And he chooses his 12 apostles. Those, that number would be significant to his Jewish readers. That this is a symbol. That God is in this. God the Father is in what this man is doing. He's kind of doing it the way that God has worked in the nation Israel. And in those miracles we see power over illness, power over nature, power over death. The blind see, the mute speak, paralytics walk. And exactly what you would expect happens. Again, he is a sensation. Multitudes are following him, flocking to wherever he goes. And so, after that, after that kingdom action and, and choosing the twelve, the second discourse happens in chapter 10. When you, if you turn to chapter 10, you'll see a lot of red ink. Because in chapter 10, Jesus gives a speech, but not just to everybody. He gives a speech to his twelve men. And he's going to send his twelve men out to go throughout Galilee and spread the word. Because the movement is getting beyond just one location. So they're going to go out and fan out and kind of diversify, spreading the message. But listen to the charge that Jesus gives his men. This is the very first GO project, by the way. This is the very first, right here. Very first GO project. Jesus is giving his men the charge. This is what we're going to do on this project, guys. Here's what I want you to do I'm going to read the charge and I'm going to give you the reaction. As you go, this is verse 7, chapter 10. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is, at, is near. and Everybody would say, Amen. Amen. Then, heal the sick. Amen. What? Amen. What? The, the, the response would be, what? Heal the sick? Raise the dead. What? Raise the dead? Cleanse the leper. Cleanse the leper? Are you kidding? Drive out demons. What? Put yourself in the shoes of these guys. This is the charge. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Oh, by the way, later on he says, and don't take anything extra and have fun. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. How do you think doubting Thomas responded to this? Right? He left that room saying, I hope we don't see any dead people. Or <laughs> well, when he came to the first leper, he said, Peter, you're up. I mean, this is amazing, the charge that he's giving to these guys, because it's not about them, really. They can't do any of that. He does that through them, okay? That's what I want you to do. I want you to go out there and do miracles. And you're representing God, and even though you're representing God, the going is going to be tough. Go to the very end of the speech, towards the end, verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. The going is going to get tough, but hang in there because you are my vessels for God's glory. That's kingdom discourse number two. Kingdom action number three begins in chapter 11 through chapter 12. And in the kingdom action in that section is actually done to Jesus because this is when he starts to be criticized up till now he's, he's a rock star, but now he starts to be criticized. He starts to be rejected. John the Baptist questions whether or not, are you the real guy? His, his mother and brothers think he's nuts, and the Pharisees are coming down on them in this kingdom action section. And so Jesus does something significant in, in verse chapter 13 when his kingdom sermons turn into parables. Chapter 13, the crowds get larger, The pushback gets stronger, and Jesus pivots to using parables. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But sometimes they were a little hard to understand, and Jesus explains why he uses parables in verse 13 of chapter 13. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Now, that's a tough explanation to get hold of, But what he's saying is basically this. I teach in parables now so that this truth is veiled before my enemies. Because I don't want my enemies to trample on this truth in such a way that stops the seeker from understanding. Those who are soft of heart. I'm guarding the hearts of those who will believe. The seeker, you'll see, will press in and try to find out a little more. So I'm not giving the critic anything really to work with. It's like this. It's like you're, you're hearing a message and the Holy Spirit is touching your heart with conviction and you're starting to think, well, I've got to do something about this when the guy next to you goes, oh, yeah, right, sure, whatever. And that moment puts out that flame in your heart. God doesn't want that to be happening to the people who are listening to Jesus. And so the parables kind of don't give them a real foothold in terms of criticism. But those who are seeking will press in and learn more But the use of the parables is a cautionary moment for us. Parables show us that if you come to the things of faith filled with ridicule and scorn, the truth will not be open to you. However, if you come ready to be changed and willing to obey on Jesus' terms alone, the truth will be open to you. There's more. The use of the parables means that you are always either better off or worse off from hearing the Word of God. It never leaves you the same. How will you respond? It's true right now. You'll be better off or worse off. And it's all up to your heart what you are doing in your readiness of heart to say, I will believe and I will respond. And so... I'm going to have to summarize here, but we see this balance between kingdom action and kingdom speech for the rest of the book. The miracles are kingdom action number four. The miracles uh, and transfiguration from chapter 13 through 17 start flipping because we're going to move here. Discourse number four is chapter 18. All of chapter 18 is discourse four, the teaching on life of the kingdom and how to get along when people let you down. That's in chapter 18. Kingdom action number five is the triumphal entry, starting in verse 19, uh, chapter nineteen, and the Passion Week, and final discourse. Kingdom speech number five is predictions of the future in chapters twenty-three through twenty-five, and Jesus pronouncing woes to his enemy, uh, for those who will re- re- reject him. And the final long sermon, section chapter 23 through 25, takes us right up to the last bit of kingdom action, and that is death, burial, and resurrection. And that's in 26 through 28:15. And that's, you don't get a bigger, a bigger demonstration of power than defeat over death. But I want to show you how Matthew styles his telling of Jesus' crucifixion in a way that would be important to Jews. Again, understand his audience. And go to chapter 27, verse 50. This is the scene on the cross where Jesus is about to die. And Matthew reminds them of these events. 27.50 And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. See, Matthew is dealing with the aftermath that the Jews in Jerusalem had been dealing with all the years intervening. Remember what happened the day that that rabbi died and the curtain ripped? Remember the earthquake? Remember the dead people walking around the streets? They had been talking about that. That rumor had been circulating. And Matthew says, it's all true. This is how it happened. Because God the Son was being killed in a sacrifice of atonement. Matthew alone tells us these details because the Jews would remember And at the very end, Jesus gives us a commission. He gives his followers a commission to represent him in the world. But when he leaves them, he doesn't give them a commission in any way or shape or form that a usual leader would give his followers when they lead. I mean, usually when a leader is giving his followers, they're about to go away, his followers are going to get out there and represent them. He would say something like this. Guys, we've been together for three years. You've seen my methods. You've learned from me you've been sent out on mission you did well you learned the work you have the diploma now you are ready go out there and spread the word That is not what Jesus says this is what Jesus says verse 18 all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me therefore go but I'll be with you see he's saying you can't do the work you're not ready you're not able It's not up to you. And here's the lesson we need to learn. That nothing we do is about our ability or our talents or our smarts or our education. When you work for the Lord, it's not Him wanting your ability. It's Him wanting your availability. And when you are available, His power flows through you. That's the message. So, if you're going to do something for Jesus, you've got to bathe it in prayer and beg for anointing. And when that happens, then eternal work will get done. Because nothing happens that matters for eternity if Jesus doesn't do it. So, Jesus says, I will be with you. You can't do it without me. But by the way, go and make disciples, make followers. And the followers need to come from all nations. All nations. And that's where the Jews would stand up and take notice. You mean this Messiah is not ours? No, it's for all nations. And so you come away from the Gospel of Matthew and you say, you know what? Jesus at the end shows us the Christian life is a life lived outward, is a life lived oriented to others, helping others, blessing others, sharing with others, teaching others. And when you live with an others' orientation, going to make disciples, you find out that you're making a statement and the statement is, I trust God. Here's how it goes. I trust God that when I care for others, He will care for me. I trust God in that. I trust God that I don't have to live a selfish life in order to have a happy life. Go and make disciples. And so when we step away from Matthew, we have to ask the question, am I going to be like the religious leaders who have a very small box that I call religion and everything has to fit in there? I'll miss Jesus. Am I going to be like the crowds who love being entertained with all the miracles and fun stuff, but I really miss Jesus? Or are I going to be like the disciples who lived an outward focused life powered by God? That self-sacrificially caring for others just happens to be the joyful life. And that's what he calls us to.